The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and 1077 FM HD 2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And as always, a very busy week in technology. Intel is on the offensive. They've purchased or they're using the majority of TSMC's three nanometer technology. That is, that's a foundry in Taiwan and they are locking up that foundry for their highest tech chips and keeping the competition out. Uh, a man hunts down his scooter using Apple AirTags, his stolen <laughs> computer. It's an it, interesting com- story. Did you say computer or scooter? Scooter. Scooter. Scooter, yeah. I mean, you could use it for a computer too, but he hunted down his scooter using <laughs> Apple AirTags. I think I've had too much coffee this I'm morning. I'm looking forward Jim. to hearing this story. This sounds interesting. A hacker hacked into the poly network and stole $600 million worth of crypto coins. And then he said it was just for fun. And he gave them them all, he gave them all back. Wow. (laughs) That's, that is quite a wild story. Uh Now this week we're going to feature Philip Estridge. He's the father of the IBM PC. We're going to feature him today. Because August 12, 2021, is the 40th anniversary of the IBM PC. Uh-huh. So it's a very, it's a very big birthday big day. going on here. Yes. yes, very big day. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. Where did he go? Your mailbox. Hang on, let me give him one more shot here. There's a letter in your mailbox. He almost, okay, he almost swallowed his new We got an email port. from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Dr. Schertz. This is not really a tech talk question, but I'm giving you feedback. For about two months, the only Tech Talk program I could get was June 12th and earlier. I couldn't get any of the ones after that. Then out of the blue, all the June programs and July programs just showed up. I wonder what's happening. Pleased that they're available now. Hope, hope that was an aberration and Tech Talk is alive and well. Arnie in Colorado Springs. Well, Arnie, this was an aberration, actually. The program that ported the XML file that I write for the, uh, for the podcast failed to port over to the website. And I was so busy on stuff, I didn't notice it. So we actually didn't post the podcast to the Stratford University website for six weeks. And now it's, we're all caught up, but, but thank you for noticing that. But I can tell you, Arnie, you do have a backup in the event uh, I'm late at getting the podcast posted because Federal News Radio posts the podcast directly. You can simply go to podcast1.com slash tech talk radio, or you can Google 
Tech Talk Radio Podcast One, and you'll get it. So if you can't find it on the Stratford website, you can always get the podcast that Federal News Radio posts. We got an email from Susan in Alexandria. Good morning, Dr. Shirts and Jim. I recently heard about security privacy issues with QR codes. Could you elaborate? Are there any countermeasures that we can take? Thanks again for your informative show. Well, uh, Susan, the attack relates to the fact that the QR code can send you to any website. And uh, bad actors are writing QR codes that send you to malicious websites that install malware without you even clicking on anything on your computer or your phone. Now, what they're doing, they're taking the, that QR code that sends you to the malicious website, and that it's like a sticker, and they'll stick it on top of a poster, or they'll stick it on a menu. They'll just sort of stick that QR code around. So you might be looking at, say, a poster for a, a theater show, and there's a QR code there that they've stuck on it. So you go to the QR code, click on it, and it takes you right there. So the thing with QR codes, they can be configured to send you directly to the website. Now, if you use your camera to scan, uh, a little pop-up window comes up, and it shows you the, um, the website uh, address, the URL that it's sending you to. So you want to check that before you let it go. The other thing you might want to do is just don't trust every QR code. Make certain it's not a sticker. Make certain it's that, that it looks authentic and it's part of that uh, part of that operation. But that has become a bigger and bigger problem. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc Jim and the elusive Mr. Big Voice, I came across an article about a new kind of malware called code poisoning. A team of researchers at Cornell University have uncovered uh, a backdoor attack that can be that can manipulate natural language modeling systems to produce incorrect outputs and evade any known defense. The Cornell said team said they would believe that they could be used to compromise algorithmic trading, email accounts, and more. I'm not sure that I understand the attack completely. What do you think of this, Doc? All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, um, because of the popularity of AI and machine learning technologies, many uh, non-expert users are building their model on top of machine learning code that they, that they barely understand. Now, a lot of this machine learning code is open source and available in repositories. And much of that open source code will have forks in it where somebody will fork it out to something else and add something and then fork it out to add something else. And so you've got a lot of forks or a lot of variations within the open source code. And bad actors are embedding malware into that open source code. And then people that don't really understand the code download it and embed it in their program. Okay, that's what's going on. And so that's called poisoned code, when they poison it with, with malware that they, that they place in the open source code. So if they place the code, say, into a machine learning algorithm, they basically, it's, it's basically designed to corrupt the, the machine learning algorithm uh, in, in whatever way they choose. Or it, they, there are actually open source email clients out there. There are many. And so you could use this poison code to, you know, to affect many, many things. 
Um, I know I remember when I was, you know, back in the day when I was doing the Stratford uh, website, I would, I, would, I would go in and, uh, and I was writing in PHP and I would go into the open source PHP repositories and say I would need uh, a block of code to, to do something. Say like set up a, a form or, or an autoresponder for email and I would set it up. And I would just pull the code right out of the repository and paste it in, change the parameters, and I was good to go. And and um, and I have to admit, I'd frequently not even look at all the code. I'd just use it, configure it, test it, and I'd be good to go. And that's what people are doing. And so now, the what we have to do is, if you're a developer and if you're using open source code, you really need to understand it and check whether it's doing what it says it's going to do. We got an email from Elijah in Ashburn. Dear Tech Talk, I dropped my Android phone and broke it. That's probably the and best it, thing you could do to an Android phone. Yeah, oh, they had to replace it. Did I say it. that? Yeah, you did. Then you get an you get an iPhone. Replace it with an iPhone. He did it. He did replace it with an did iPhone. Did he? Good for him. Yeah, he, he got a used iPhone seven because he didn't want to spend all that money. We could be friends now. Yeah, <laughs> but but here's the problem. Yeah. He he has a, a headset with a uh, with with a jack. Yep, that's the problem. And he can't plug it into the iPhone. Yep. He says I don't I don't want to have to buy a Bluetooth phone. Uh, what you know what what can I do? Well, here's the here's the uh, here's the thing. Uh, you can uh, you know this this lack of a of a headphone jack has been a frustration for many people because Apple got rid of it. Now. One reason they got rid of it is it really helped with waterproofing. Yes. Because that jack yeah. went in there. So that was like a – actually, Apple would like to get rid of all the jacks to make the iPhone absolutely waterproof. But they, but they, but that actually did leak water, so they want to get rid of it for waterproofing reasons. But also, Apple just likes to abandon what they feel is obsolete technology, and they, and they felt the headphone jack was obsolete technology. So they want to get rid of it just because they could. And so they did, and they forced everybody to go to Bluetooth. Now, the good news is you can actually plug into the lightning port. That's the charging port. Mm -hmm. You can get an adapter, which goes lightning port to headphone jack. And so you can actually plug your headphone jack right into the yep. lightning port, and you can get an adapter. Now, what I discovered, if you get the lightning port to uh, lightning uh, lightning plug to, 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 to headphone adapter uh port um you can get that at apple you can get that little uh, adapter for 13.99 if you go to the apple store mm -hmm. but if you go onto amazon on the amazon apple store you can get it for 7.99 so it's cheaper to buy it from amazon it and is. It's, it's actually an apple product and so it's 7.99 now you have a choice that one, while you're using the jack, you can't charge your phone. Ah, you can yes, get, you can. You can get a jack that's got a charger and the headphone jack on it, and that's what I have. And but that's it costs like 40 Exactly bucks. right, but that costs you more money, yeah, Jim. Yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. It, it certainly did, but I've got to tell you, it's worth it. It's worth yeah, it. So, so how much was that? I think I paid how, how 40 bucks on Amazon, but I'm not so sure that I – I'll bet if I was as savvy as you, Doc, I would have gone <laughs> to the uh, Apple store on Amazon and found it cheaper. But I think I found it – I can't remember. I might have found this thing at Target. Come to think of it, it was either there or I found it on Amazon. But I didn't. It, it cost about forty bucks. It's not cheap. 
40 bucks. Yeah. yeah. I, that's, that's why I didn't recommend that one, Jim, because it was so expensive. Well, I was cheapy, but, uh, but actually being able to charge your phone at the same time makes a real difference. There are certain things that I just have to be able to do. And that's why that's right. yep. we got an email from Kenneth Bogle in Miami. Hello. You mentioned in previous shows, the roles of critical thinking. Now, uh, that that you teach now. How can I get copies of these critical thinking rules? You know, I'm I'm really interested in that. Respectfully, Ken in Miami, Florida. Well, Ken, I do talk a lot about critical thinking. In fact, Marianne says I bring a critical to thinking. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So critical thinking. It's it's a it's a phrase that that means you basically uh, it's it's you're thinking about your thinking. You're thinking how you think. <laughs> you're overthinking that, about your thinking. Yeah, well, you're thinking how you're thinking. Because if people just start thinking stuff, they, you know, they jump to conclusions and they, and, they, um, and they don't really realize how they arrive at that conclusion, for instance. And so you have to step back and think about your thinking and how you draw conclusions. That's the idea. I mean, it goes back, uh, goes back all the way to Socrates. Socrates taught on the on the sidewalks of Athens taught youth but see Socrates didn't uh, uh, didn't lecture he asked questions and he would ask students questions have you thought of this have you thought of that have you thought of that and by asking questions he led them through each of the stages of critical thinking so that they could draw a conclusion in a very logical way. So we taught critical thinking by asking questions. By the way, that method of teaching is called the Socratic method. And the funny thing is Socrates didn't write anything about it. It was Plato who wrote about, who was one of Socrates' students who wrote about Socrates. If it weren't for Plato, we'd, we'd know nothing about Socrates. So in fact, we do teach critical thinking at Stratford because, um, uh, what employers want, they, 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 they don't want somebody that can regurgitate something they learned in a book. They want an employee who can solve a problem they've never seen before. They've never seen it in a book, and they've got to think through the problem. Now, if you'd want to, um, uh, Ken, if you want to get uh, the details on critical thinking, my favorite website is the Foundation for Critical Thinking. I love this place, www.criticalthinking.org criticalthinking.org. I just love this website. I've gotten, I've read it. I've got their videos. I've been, uh, it's my Bible. Now they have a graphical summary of their model, which is, um, you can go to logic model, uh, criticalthinking.org and then logic model. You can just Google it. And it's very useful when you're thinking about a problem. So essentially critical thinking is applying the scientific method to everyday thinking. I mean, you look, I mean, you have, you know, the purpose of the thinking. Why am I thinking about this? What's my purpose? What's the question at hand? Uh, what kind of information do I need to answer that question? Um, what is the underlying model that I'm going to use to analyze the data? After I've analyzed the data, what are my conclusions or what are my inferences? Uh, what are my underlying assumptions, especially the unwritten assumptions? What are the implications of my conclusion? And, and another important, important one is what is my point of view? So 
in, in, in critical thinking, you've got to go through all of these processes. Then the point of view is really important because you have to sort of step out of your own skin and whatever you believe, whatever your point of view is, you have to say, well, that's one point of view. And then you have to say, are there other points of view? And you've got to look at the problem through the eyes of others so you can see it through uh, multiple points of view. And if you go through that process, you will end up making valid decisions. Now, these principles, if you want to see how they're applied to business, uh, 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 Ken, the... uh, there, there, there's a book that I really like. It was written by Chip Heath and Dan Heath. They're two brothers, Chip and Dan Heath. As it's opposed called, to Chip and Dale. Chip, yeah, Chip and Dale. It's called Decisive, How to Make Better Choices in Life and Work. Now, this shows you how to apply critical thinking to business decisions. Uh, this required reading for my whole executive team. I mean, one of the lessons in the book They said a lot of times when people are making a decision, they lock on a particular, (laughs) they lock on a particular solution up front and everything they do supports that solution. And that is the best way to make a mistake. So you've got to have somebody who brings up other points of view. And that's extremely, extremely important. So anyway, uh, that was a good question. I love to talk about critical thinking. I could talk about it all day. We got an email from Asia in Virginia Beach. Dear Tech Talk, uh, someone received an email apparently from my Gmail account, and I've never sent the email. Now I received a letter from an attorney uh, accusing me of harassing his client. How can I help clarify this misunderstanding? Thanks, Asia in Virginia Beach. That's a good question and a bad situation. It is a bad situation. Well, actually, most most of our email messages are accurate, but it's easy for somebody to actually to spoof an email. You can simply put in, uh, you know, there's a field you can put in your your return email address. You can put anything you want, and 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 you'll send it. And uh, and and that's what happens. Many of these. Uh, Many of these um, people that send out spam, they'll use the email addresses of other people. That's what they do. And it's, it's a very, very common problem. Now, and it's easy to change the, uh, the, you know, the send from email address, which is what he's looking at. But it's harder to change the headers. You can change the headers, but it's harder to do. And there's a lot of additional information in the headers. And every email has header information that's, uh, that's hidden. It includes server-to-server path. They can see the path of the email on the way. Um, it, it might even include uh, the machine name, the real email address, the IP address of the sender. And so it's, there's a lot more stuff there. So, um, so you can see the full header. If you, if you get the email, you can say view source. It depends on your email client. You could say view header, or you could say view original on your, in your email client. And then you should be able to see all of that information. So I would ask the uh, the people you're dealing with to do that on the email that they received. If they forward the email to you, all that header information will be gone because it'll be replaced by the header information of their forwarding email. And then they may be able to track that down. Uh, I wouldn't really count on it, but there is information there. And uh, 
The good news is these spamming activities, eventually they stop using your email address and they'll go into somebody else's email address. So there may be a burst of email from you for a short time and then it will end. I've had this happen to me before. We got an email from Knock in Houston. Dear Tech Talk, I'm attending a convention in Houston. would like to record some comments about a few of the sessions on my iPhone. What are my options? Love the show. Knock. Normally from Ohio. Norm, where is she now? Uh, in Houston. Oh. At a conference. Oh, it's, yeah. I, I see. Yeah. Okay. You can always, uh, well, Nock, you can always, of course, make a video of the session. Now, that takes a lot of memory, and I yeah. don't think it's practical on your iPhone. Now, you can make uh, voice comments using voice uh, memos if you want. That's, um, you know, that's really a great option. It's not probably a very good option uh if you're sitting in the audience making yeah, voice memos. It's not an option at all. Now, what I like to do, I, I like to use the notes, and I, and I will type notes uh, of the session. Now, all, the other thing I do, I, I, I like about notes, too, is that it, if, if I'm after the session is over and say I'm, I'm by myself, I can click on the little microphone down by the, key, down by the keyboard, and, um, and, I can, uh, and I can then just simply say my notes, and it transcribes them and puts them into notes. And that transcription feature is really convenient. So it may be you could take some very short notes while you're in the session, and then you could have longer notes that you could use transcription when you get back to your room shortly after the session. Best of luck with all of that. Listen, uh, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, southwest of D.C. on 107.7 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Find out how you can attend Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. 
guest today, we're going to talk about Philip Donald Estridge. Don Estridge led the development of the original IBM personal computer and is known as the father of the IBM PC. Now, we're going to feature him today because this is the 40th anniversary of the IBM PC. Actually, August 12th was the 40th anniversary, and so it's a very special week for us here. <laughs> I, you know, Jim, I went down it's to the basement. I, I, you spend a lot of time I, in the basement, I threw, don't you? I threw out my IBM PC. Did you? I, you know, I, I, I thought I might have it down here in the bunker, and uh, I threw it out a few years ago. Because wow. after a while, it just became a paperweight. But it may have been valuable if I'd have kept it. Uh, yeah. Now, if they were two thousand bucks, I'm I'm letting the cat out of the bag. Yeah, yeah. I'll let that. you just tell the story. Around that. now, Estridge was born June twenty third, nineteen thirty seven, in Jacksonville, Florida. He graduated from Bishop Kenny High School in nineteen fifty nine and got a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering from the University of Florida in nineteen fifty nine. Now he joined IBM uh, right after uh, right after college and he, as a junior engineer. And he held various positions uh, within IBM. He started out with the Federal Systems Division, and that included programming support for NASA Goddard. Then he joined the General Systems Division from 75 to 79, where he was a Series 1 programmer, program manager, Series 1 programming manager. Now, the... Uh, now, the IBM project started around in, in the 1980s, and, and, and it, it came out of a presentation by William Lowe, uh, that, where William Lowe made a presentation before IBM's corporate management. Now, that included the president, John Opel, and the chairman, Frank Carey, and that was in July of 1980. Now, Lowe convinced the committee that a small group focused on putting together pieces from outside industry uh, rather than creating something within IBM, could indeed create a new computer within a year. You see, the traditional way that IBM operated, because they made these huge computers, they would do everything internally. And uh, cost was no object, uh, time frame was no object, and it became a huge bureaucracy. And they wanted to get a PC out there quickly. Because if you, if you remember back at the time, Apple had released their computer, and the operating system CPM was running on a lot of other uh, computers out there, say like the Commodore, and, uh, and they wanted to get into the action. The other thing that they wanted to do, that Lowe wanted to do, he didn't want to use the traditional uh, sales pipeline of IBM, which was all corporate. He said, look, let's just sell it to Sears and Computerland, which is completely unlike IBM. Yeah. But he said... If if we do this, there's going to be so much resistance among the bureaucracy, we'll never get it done. So he said, we need a small team of people off by themselves to work on it. So they started a secret project called Project Chess. Huh. Project Chess. You they should remember want, that. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't want to, uh, you know, they didn't want to. It was really classified for in, internally classified because they didn't want people, people uh, stopping it. Now, at that time, Don Estridge was... Uh, was in charge of the small entry-level system division, and uh, and uh, and so uh, this and so Don Estridge actually 
was the one that Lowe assigned to lead the project. So Don Estridge was really a, 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 an excellent uh, manager. He knew how to pull together resources. He knew how to get things done. He was a project manager. So Don Estridge then controlled the small-level systems division, which, of course, an IBM PC is a small-level system, as they say. And he led the skunk works. That's what they call it. You know, skunk works, that's a name when you got classified information. You know, it's usually this sort of DOD classified stuff. But now this is classified internally. So he led skunk works, and it started out with only 14 people. There were 12 uh, engineers and a couple of other people who knew sales and marketing. Now, his task was to compete with the Apple computer, the Commodore computer, and many of the perceived uh, competitors of IBM that were using the CPM operating system. Now, Estridge realized he had to really make this cheap, which is not the IBM mantra. Right. Any, nothing they did was cheap. No. So in order to be cost-effective, he realized that he would have to use third-party hardware and software. Go outside of IBM to get it. Now, previously, IBM built everything with IBM parts. Now, Estridge was a renegade. That's why they picked him. He was a renegade. And he just wanted to choose off-the-shelf components to keep the costs down. Now, this was a complete departure from the previous IBM strategy, which centered around in-house vertical development of complicated mainframe systems. More importantly, and this is probably the most important thing that Estridge did, he wanted to make the PC an open hardware architecture, which was extremely important because that would let other manufacturers build on top of what IBM had designed. So the open architecture led the way for component development that would be compatible with the IBM PC. Estridge even published the specifications of the IBM PC in detail, in particularly the, the, uh, the ISA bus. That was the industry standard architecture. That was the bus that connected the, the motherboard to all the peripheral boards. And uh, the, all the specs were released. And that would allow uh, the development of a booming aftermarket uh, to take advantage of expansion slots for the IBM PC. Now, even though IBM was the largest software company in the world, he even opted for open third-party software. <laughs> you can imagine, he signed up this little firm, Microsoft, to provide languages huh. and to even provide the operating system. This little firm, Microsoft. Yeah, and back then it was a little firm. And, uh -huh. and, and Microsoft, I gave you that story, they, 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 wanted to, they initially wanted to use the CPM operating system, and then the guy that wrote it wouldn't work with IBM, so they ended up going with uh, Microsoft, and Microsoft basically copied CPM, made a few modifications, and called it DOS. Now, later versions, uh, uh, later versions of the IBM PC, as they were developing it, they sent to software companies, which allowed for the creation of initial packages, such as the VisiCalc spreadsheet, a series of accounting programs for Pete, written by Peachtree Software, as well as a word processor called EasyWriter. 
By the end of 1980, the team of 14 had grown to 150. And by January of 1981, the machine was first demonstrated within the company. Now you've got to realize that this project started in August of 1980, and they demonstrated a machine in January of 1981, I mean, six months to develop a machine. Now, it wasn't released yet, but that was an unheard of uh, development cycle within IBM. And then the big day came, August 12th, 1981, 40 years ago. Mm. Uh, almost exactly one year after Project Chess was given the go-ahead, IBM introduced the IBM Personal Computer 5150. But people just called it the IBM PC. And it was sold at Computerland and Sears Business Centers. Now, if you want to get the stripped-down model, it sold for $1,565. And that included an 8088, 8088 CPU Intel chip, a 16K of RAM, no floppy disk, and no monitor. I mean, you could you couldn't do anything with it. I now, guess you'd have to you'd have to plug it into your TV to to see anything. Right. I guess back then that was cheap. That's right. Now most people got the sort of the upgraded model. They got 64k of RAM. They got a single sided floppy disk, and that had a list price of 2880. Jeez, wow. <laughs> Which is kind of what you're remembering, Jim. Sort yeah. Of the 2000. Now they originally estimated that they would sell 250,000 units over five years. This thing was selling like hotcakes. Mm. When they were peaking up in their production, they would sell 250,000 units a month. Wow. I mean, it was a huge success for IBM. This open architecture made all the difference in the world. I mean, open architecture really prevails. That's why so many people hate uh, Apple, because it's a it's a proprietary architecture yeah. uh, that other people can't build on. So I so the IBM PC is the dominant worldwide computer because of the open architecture. It's clear, pure and simple. Now, the PC architecture created by the Boko Raton team in the Skunk Works became the industry standard resulting in thousands of applications, a huge variety of add-in boards that were designed for the uh, ISA bus, as well as many other PC-compatible machines created by dozens of vendors. So there was a huge... I mean, people were making IBM-compatible machines because all the specs had been released. By the time that Estridge gave up the reins of the PC division... Uh, the division had 10,000 employees uh, and a revenue of $4.5 billion a year. I guess, I guess IBM was happy. IBM was very happy with that. Now, in 1983, Apple came to him. They offered him a multi-million dollar deal to become president of Apple. He turned that down. The next year, uh, IBM gave Estridge a promotion and made him the IBM vice president of manufacturing. And then uh, August 2nd, 1985, something very sad happened. Estridge and his wife, Marianne, were killed in a plane crash at the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport, August 2nd, 1985. Estridge was only 48 years old. It was a sad, uh, sad case for him. But he was honored within IBM for being a mover and a shaker, and he's remembered fondly as the father of the IBM TC. In 1999, 
He was identified in CIO magazine as one of the people who invented the enterprise. Hmm. In 2004, uh, IBM exited the desktop and laptop arena, uh, and it sold its personal computer division to Lenovo, a major Chinese PC manufacturer. Actually, that was a sad day when they did that. I didn't like it. You know, they were manufacturing the IBM PC in China, actually. Everything was being manufactured in China. So they just decided just to give it to the guys that are manufacturing it. And I, uh, I, I think that that was a, that was a, uh, a sad day. Yeah. Uh, so now Lenovo is the carrying on the legacy of the IBM PC, manufacturing all of their products in China. So there you go. Everything you want to know about Philip Don Estridge, the father of the IBM PC. Now, you know, when you mentioned the air, the aircraft uh, uh, crash that he was killed in, it, it rang a bell, the date. And that was a that was a famous airline crash. That was Delta One Ninety One that crashed at um, Fort Lauderdale. It, cla- it crashed in Dallas because of wind shear. They were landing in a thunderstorm. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember that the was details, a, on that me. was a, I think that was one of the flights that led to that one of the incidents that led to uh, wind shear alerts at uh, at airports. It was an L ten eleven crashed uh, going into Dallas. Let's see what wow. was it? One hundred thirty seven people were killed in that. Twenty six others were hurt. So that was definitely a sad event. So it was. yeah, yep. Hope you're paying attention because uh, the information we just uh, imparted, in fact, Doc imparted most of it, could win you free lunch. Eventually, when you play the pop quiz here on Tech Talk Radio, we're heard on WFED in Washington, 1500 AM, 107.7 FM HD2, southwest of the area, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell, Jim Russ. Featuring Mr. Big Voice, 
with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band. And your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're letting it soak in more than you I normally do really today. I really am. I just, my favorite part of the show. I but it's it not is. really a show. No. It's a classroom yes. of the airwaves, Jim. Right. And we have to assess whether our audience, both in the studio as well as in the virtual studio, as well as in Radio Land, yeah. is listening. <laughs> radio and Land. And, do and, that and, and on all. the interwebs, too, because, you know, you can we stream do. it. Yes, we can stream it over the internet. Exactly. So, and of course we do that with the pop quiz. And if you get the right answer to the pop quiz, you'll get two tickets to fine dining. And I think you'll be able to use that when we have a special Tech Talk event, which is going to be coming out as soon as we can figure out what's going on with the Delta variant. Maybe even this year. Maybe. Yeah, maybe this year. Maybe. Because I want, I'd like to get every, all the winners together in one, one room, and we could have a big Tech Talk extravaganza one night. So... <laughs> Uh, will be a lot. We did that once before, and it was we did. really a lot of fun. Uh-huh. So earlier in the show, I talked about Philip Donald Estridge. He, of course, is the father of the PC. Well, when they started this secret project in the Skunk Works, it had a code name. What was the code name for the IBM PC project? Hang on. Mr. Big Voice just uh, stepped out for a cigarette. He's back now, and here's what he has to say. If you know the answer to today's question, pick up your phone, give us a call. Dialing from west of the Rockies, 877-936-9333. If you're applying a rain to your green fishing lights under a random dock east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're looking for a Compuland in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. Yup, sanitized hourly with whatever we can find, 877-9-3639-333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Didn't Computerland eventually shorten their name to Compuland? Wasn't that how that worked? I think they certainly could have. I'm not really sure, Jim. <laughs> yeah, you're not the kind of guy who shops at CompuLand. No, not really. You usually just build it yourself. That's right. That is exactly right. Well, let's talk about how Intel is going on the offensive. Uh-huh. I mean, if you remember, uh, uh, Apple came out with what they call Apple Silicon. Now they're putting their own chips in their own, uh, in their own uh, iPhones and their own laptops. And they've basically cut Intel out because they said Intel wasn't innovating fast enough. Because Intel was basically trying to come up with the low-cost option for the chip, and Apple wanted very high-performance chips, and, uh, and that just wasn't in the wheelhouse for Intel. So over time, Intel began to lose their edge in the chip market. Well, Intel recently got a new CEO, and he said, he said it is a shame when a lifestyle company like Apple can make a better integrated circuit than Intel. And he said, we're going to fix that. So he start, he's a technology guy, so he started investing in chip development, as you might expect. Now, they actually are behind in sort of the very small feature size chips. These would be the three nanometer chips. I think they're down to 10 nanometer chips now. A nanometer is 10 to the minus, minus ninth meters, and as you get smaller and smaller and smaller, You've got resolution issues to try to, uh, you know, you know, form the masks. So three nanometer technology is very hard to pull off. 
Well, it turns out that Taiwan Semiconductor, TSMC, has a three nanometer technology that are developing it. And what Intel did, they want their next generation of chips to be three nanometer, but they don't have the technology yet. So they're doing something that is unheard of for silicon. They are outsourcing their chip manufacturing to a, to a foundry. So Intel has secured the majority of uh, Taiwan Semiconductor's three nanometer process capacity for the next year. And it's using that technology to produce three new CPUs and one graphical processing unit, one GPU. Now, this move is going to put pressure on Intel's rivals, AMD and Apple, because they relied on Taiwan Semiconductor for their chips. And now there's not enough capacity there. So Intel is crowding them out. Now, according to the Chinese publication UDN, the production using the three nanometer node is expected to start the second quarter of next year, 2022, with the mass production set to begin in, in the middle of 2022. The production is expected to reach 4,000 wafers a month by May of 2022, and eventually reach 10,000 wafers per month by the end of the year. Now, Intel already has its own fabrication labs, and it's allowing other companies to use those lower capacity labs for their chips. So they are allowing Qualcomm and Amazon to use the current Intel labs in the U.S. to manufacture their chips, while Intel is using Taiwan Semiconductor. Now, Pat Gelsinger, he's the CEO, he has announced that the firm is planning to build a $120 billion mega fabrication lab uh, in the U.S., and they will eventually have three nanometer processing capacity in the U.S., but until they have it here, they're going to outsource to Taiwan. So Intel is on the offensive. Okay, we do not have a winner yet. So why don't you ask the question again? I'm going to ask an alternate question, and then we're going to go to break, okay? Okay. Earlier in the show, I talked about Don Estridge, the father of the IBM PC. The, that IBM PC development project within, within in, uh, IBM had a particular code name, Project What? Okay. And, and what it, was the name of that Code name. And the for the remedial class, if you can't get that one, my question is, where could you buy the IBM PC? So those are the uh, questions. And uh, if you would like to give us a call on 877-936-9333, uh, the first caller will get the uh, will get the prize. This is Tech Talk, heard on Federal News Network. We'll be right back. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. Yeah, this week, Sounds ominous. This week down in the bunker. I couldn't find my IB, my old IBM PC, and I used to have one. Actually. You trashed it, didn't you? I did trash it. Yeah, it was a paperweight. I got rid of it. Should have kept it. Yeah. But I started thinking about IBM and how they were able to bring that out in just one year, and I compared it to uh, Xerox. That actually Xerox invented the personal computer. They had the uh, the Alto, the Xerox Alto. They invented the PC back in the 60s. They were way ahead of the game, and they not never got anything out the door. So um, I started thinking about that, and there was a book written about Xerox. They called Fumbling the Future <laughs> at Xerox. And then uh, compared with focusing on the market at IBM. Now, in the 60s and 70s, Xerox Palo Alto Research Center invented just about everything you could imagine. They invented the first true PC, the Xerox Alto. This device had everything. It had Ethernet networking which they invented. It had a graphical user interface that was stolen by Steve Jobs. It had icons on the screen that you'd click on. It had bit mapping, so you could actually have graphics on the screen. It had scalable type, so you could actually print what you see is what you get. It had a mouse, and they had invented the first laser printer in the world. They had hmm. all that technology in the 70s. Now think about in the 60s and 70s, think about this. The IBM PC didn't come along until 81. Yeah. So they were years ahead of the time. So what did the Xerox management do with it? Nothing. <laughs> That's right. Nothing. Yeah. What, what happened was Xerox had, um, you know, had released the Xerox copy machine 914, and it was a cash cow. And these guys just sat, these executives just sat at the bank cashing the checks on that cash cow. And Xerox rode high on the hog until the patents expired. Mm. <laughs> and then they had a lot of competition in the copier business. Now, and so they actually did not leverage all the great technology at the Zero Alto, uh, Zero, uh, Palo Alto Research Center that they supported. Now, the main beneficiary of a lot of their work was actually Steve Jobs. These guys took Steve Jobs on a tour of Park. They showed him everything. They even watched him take notes on everything they were doing. Within months, he hired away some of Palo Alto Research Center's top talent and instituted a program that resulted in a computer with a graphical user interface called Lisa, which was the forerunner of the Mac. I mean, with the... Uh, what you see is what you get, the laser printer, mm -hmm. the yeah. mouse, the icons, all of that 
was copied from Palo Alto Research Center, and they just basically gave it away. Wow. Because management didn't want to have anything to do with it. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got Bill Lowe. Now, Bill Lowe was the, uh, was the president who proposed uh, the project uh, of the IBM PC at IBM. And when he made his original presentation, he said there are two things that have to be done. Number one, he said, now the industry is developed enough in, com in personal computers that this is a viable opportunity for IBM. Now, mind you, IBM is like 10 years behind, the, behind the, their competitors in the, in, in, the, in the computer business. Xerox had been in it for, for more than a decade. Uh, and number two, in order to get it done quickly, Lowe said, we have to go outside of the IBM culture. Those were the two points he made, and he got the top executives to agree. They want to field something quickly, and they'll go outside of the culture. And so uh, when Lowe put together, and he, he gave them one month, he said, in one month, we will have a design proposal for you. And in one month, they came back with a design proposal. The project was approved. One year later, under Estridge's leadership, they actually had the device on sale and ready to produce. It's an unbelievable uh, achievement. Now, now, they had to deviate from traditional IBM practices in nearly everything. They even bought an outside operating system instead of developing their own. And they went for an open architecture, and nothing at IBM is open architecture. Mm -hmm. Everything they did was proprietary. That was a huge difference. And they allowed it to connect peripherals of other machines. They had an open architecture for the bus. They let people make compatible things. So they pulled together a team of a dozen engineers to put it together. They had two marketing guys on there. So from the beginning, they envisioned what the market was, what the user would be. They designed it for the user, and they got the thing out and sold and successful. So those are the two extremes. Focusing on the market that IBM did, got it out in a year, versus fumbling the future, as Xerox did, when they had no top-level leadership that wanted to marshal the technology out of the research lab and into the marketplace. Okay, Doc, we do have somebody who would like to play the game. Let's go okay, to line right. one. This is Thomas calling <laughs> from Falls Church. Good morning, Thomas. How are you? I'm fine. Good. Can you hear me? We sure yes, certainly can, perfectly. Doc. perfectly. Yeah, Early in the show, we talked about Don Estridge. Uh, they worked on the IBM PC. What was the code name for that project? The name was Chess. Excellent. Very Correct. good, Thomas. You are the winner. Hang on. Actually, you don't have to. We already got your information. Thanks for listening to Saturday, and uh, we will uh, catch up with you another uh, another time down the road. All right, Doc, we're just going to continue on to the end of the hour here, if you wouldn't okay, mind. Okay, man hunts down his stolen computer with Apple AirTags. So <clears throat> these Apple AirTags are pretty nice. I'm going to buy some. Uh -huh. So what it is, Apple AirTags, they, they basically, you can locate them with Find My Phone, if you got an iPhone, Find My Phone. And the AirTag has a Bluetooth connection. And if there's a, any phone nearby, it will connect with it and send the signal back to you using the GPS location from, from the phone that connected to it. So if, if something with an AirTag on it is lost, 
and there's someone around it with an iPhone, you'll get a ping and it, and it will be done. So it turned out that Dan Guido had an electric scooter. It was stolen <clears throat> August 2nd in the night. Now it turned out that Guido <clears throat> is the CEO of a cybersecurity firm in Brooklyn, New York. And he's kind of a security guy. So he took two Apple AirTags and he hid them on the, on the scooter. Actually, the scooter was black, so he taped it with black, with this big, wide, black electrical uh -huh, tape. So, uh -huh. so you couldn't really see right. them. It was black duct tape, and he put them you know, in hidden places on the, the scooter and just left them there. And uh, so then he, wanted, he, he needed to uh, figure out how to find them, so he started pinging it, and uh, he got back his signal. He found he pinged him. That's pretty amazing. So then he, so then he called the uh, the police. He called the police because you know you don't want to go you know into somebody's right. apartment if yeah. they're stolen your scooter. You might get shot uh, and or arrested. So he called shot. the New York City police and he said, "Look, I, I got these Air, Apple AirTags here. I think I can find my scooter. Will you come with me?" They were not willing to go with him. You're kidding. They said, "They said if you have to enter a store or knock on a door, we're not going to go with you." Uh, I guess the police are just, you know, backing down these days. So what did he do? Did they... he have to do a stakeout, wait for the guy to come outside? Yeah. Now, he knew that he had to move quickly because Apple had, had just pushed out an update. See, because people were using these AirTags to track people. Like they would, you know, like some guy might drop an AirTag in a woman's purse and use that to track her. And, uh, and so this tracking thing was not not really a, 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 an item that, uh, that, a, that they wanted the AirTags used for. So if it turns out that an AirTag is near another iPhone and that iPhone is not tracking it, it will start beeping, indicating that, uh, you know, so the person can find it. So Apple had just put that, pushed out this update, which would keep people from nefarious use of the air tag mm -hmm. so he knew he knew that the air tag would beep so anyway he did find it it was in an it was in a shop and he was able to go there without any trouble at all listen right. we love your email email us at tech talk at stratford.edu you'll get back to you as soon as we can and go to the website www.stratford.edu and tell them that you heard about those programs on tech talk radio Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.